I'm excited to introduce Barnaby Clay, writer-director who has completed his first feature narrative, a psychological horror film, The Seating. Welcome, Barnaby. Hi, Tammy. So I am so excited to dive into your film. Number one, it was it was like a spiraling rabbit hole of fear and isolation. And I felt like the music design and composition only enhanced the creepiness and the unsettling feeling I had, in particular in the opening scene with that baby. <laughs> and was that your child? No, that is no. That was my uh, uh, my child's a bit older. That is my very close friend, production designer extraordinaire KK Barrett. That's his grandson, actually. Well, funnily enough. Wow. I mean, that was just bringing you into the creepiness of this film. What was that baby eating? The thing that it was a it was a uh, it was a prosthetic finger, which was basically. Every between every take, it was like doused in honey. Um, so that kid, um, Bodie is his name, was having a whale of a time. He was loving it. He was. Like, <laughs> he really didn't want to give that finger up at the end of the day. Yeah, I didn't know if it was um, created like it was. At first, I was thinking, I wonder if they made like the carrot look like the finger. I knew it was a finger, but I just didn't know if it was like an edible thing. Yeah, that he was eating that was in the shape of a finger. We had a we had we had one built. We um this uh very brilliant practical effects designer Vincent Giustini. He designed the finger and uh, he gave me a, a few fingers, but obviously we had to try and build them with the knowledge that yeah the little baby was going to be chewing on it and it couldn't be toxic. So he had to kind of veer away from certain things that he usually uses and um. And stick to things which are a bit more, yeah, just like non-toxic. And just the close-up of that baby, it was just so chilling. And then um, the baby out in the field, it was kind of like, oh my god, like who's watching this kid? But it just like led you into this, um, <laughs> into this world that I found. And and again, I go back to the music was so well done. I mean, it just brought yeah. out the freakiness. Every time it's like, oh, the eerie <laughs> music bringing me even deeper into this hole that this this yeah. guy was in. Yeah. So um, maybe we should just start yeah. with, well, what is the film? And I know that uh, it took you a while to write. Around eight years, I had read that it took you to write this. And, you know, sometimes when I, when I read about that, I was thinking, well, you know, a lot of projects do take a, take a while to, you know, write and get made. And I know that sometimes life can take over. What was your process writing it? Did you conceive the idea and know from start to finish what it was going to be about? Or was it an evolution to get to where it was today? I mean, I usually write a uh, pretty fleshed out treatment to start off with, which is like the template that I go, that I build the script from. And that's maybe anywhere between 20 and 30 pages and it's really kind of boring and plodding to read it because it's basically it's yeah it's the the story beats you know uh without any of the character and without any of the dialogue so it's got it's got no real life to it but at the same time it's just a really great bl bl blueprint which i can then take and then start okay okay this is the scene let's let's make it a real scene you know so that's how I generally work. This was, I mean, it's, yeah, it was nine years from now, basically. It's released to when I came up with the idea. But I should say, like, within that process, I was finishing something else. I did other projects in the meantime. Uh, there was a different iteration of this film that was going to be shot for more money. And uh, back in, I guess, twenty. 2019, 2020, um, which all fell apart. And so, you know, then I had to rebuild it. So there's, it's it's not a clear cut, like not like I spent nine years right. just in front of my laptop yeah. working away on that script. But, you know, certainly within that time, it's constantly changing and the script was constantly changing right up until it the edit was done. I mean, that the scene we're talking about 
of the baby at the very beginning was not in the script. It was not in the shooting script even. It was it was something which came in post-production um, when we were editing and we just felt like... I, I'd already always had this sequence in the script of my character driving out of the city, um, heading into the wilderness. Uh, and it's kind of a classic setup for a horror movie. Uh, leaving the world behind him and you know you get a bit of character he's talking to people at his office or his family members and and then and then there he is in the wilderness but uh I just didn't I never really wanted to do that that was something that I was kind of pushed towards in uh by my producers really and um but we just never had the time or the money to do it and but I felt like I wanted something at the front of the film that kind of led you into this world and I was just looking for literally I just wanted an idea which was very upfront very like extreme and something that hopefully I'd never seen before and something that I that if I was sitting in a cinema and the lights went down and I saw that I would feel like okay yeah I'm I'm into this ride. Wherever it's taking me, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm going. You know, uh, so that was my that was my feeling, and um, so came up with the the idea of this child walking through the desert, chewing on a yeah, finger alone. Um, just I just felt like yeah, that's never gonna you know. At that point, you're either like you're either in this film or you're out. You can walk out the room at that point, or you can stay and kind of get into it. So um, that was uh, and yeah, so. Anyway, long story short. No, I love short. it. Like, how did the story change? I know that you had uh, a different budget from, you know, in ni- in 2019, then the pandemic hit, and then you had to restructure. You even recasted as right. well. Um, yeah, So what right, yeah. changed in the script from pre-pandemic to post-pandemic than what, what I saw? Was anything different in the um, conception of it? Not hugely, no. I mean, the main thing which was different, I basically, <laughs> so I called my, I had a conversation with my producer. I'd spent much of the early days of the pandemic trying to shop the script around again to try and rebuild the financing. I was having a really tough time, lots of doors closing, which had previously been open, but I think there was a shift in the mentality uh, of financing at that point, like during the pandemic, where suddenly, because it everything got so extreme, everybody was just a little bit more careful about what they were going to spend money on. And they read this script and they were like, yeah, it's cool. We really like it, but it's a bit weird. And, you know, it's horror, but it's not really horror. It's kind of arty as well. And like, do we want to get maybe... They just came... Everybody came out of the pandemic with a bit more, like, hands back on that point. You know, they were just like not quite so willing to get behind it. So... um and I spoke to my producer, I was like, we have to get this made somehow. Do you think we can do it for half the amount of money? Which basically went from, we were looking at around three to four million. And we really, but then I said to him, it's not even half. I just said to him, well, look, do you think, is there any way we could do this for like a million dollars, basically? Because I feel like, I feel like there's a number that, you know, through people I know and production companies, whatnot, I just feel like I just felt like that that was a realistic amount, and any lower than that would just be impossible to make the film. So he said yes, and then and then I I said, well, what's you know, what should <laughs> do I need to go back to the drawing board, you know, and and rebuild this? And he he said, let's try and shoot what we can. Let's try and shoot it all, and. um because we we weren't really sure what we were dealing with this under the circumstances, and you know it was only really when we were there um, after like two days, really of shooting or even a day of shooting that it became apparent that we were not going to make the film that the script uh, had uh, written out. It was a uh, there was a lot of there was a lot more going on in it. There were a lot more elements that just we just couldn't get. We had to, I, well, I say we, I had to rethink it all, you know, and I spent most of my free, all of my free time actually just doing that, basically rewriting. Like every single minute that I wasn't on set, 
or sleeping at night, I was rewriting the film. And um, there was a lot of small scenes that we lost or like we shot, but they weren't, they were kind of watered down versions that we ended up, ended up using. Um, but the main big difference was the ending. There was a completely different ending and it was a very, um, it was a much more convoluted, involved piece with stunts and with all the kids and kind of thing which would you know take a a larger like hollywood production unit like a, a week or more to shoot you know maybe a couple of weeks even like and we really had it scheduled for like a day and we're like forget it this is going to be impossible there's no way so i had to really go back to the drawing board there and um luckily i had this other ending which is the ending which is in the film which was actually my very very first ending that i'd written in the first draft of the script and but i just felt it was too bleak and it wasn't right for some reason and and so i wrote this other ending and then yeah so but then i in this situation i went back to it and i was just like it is bleak but it's actually really what is supposed to happen you know, yeah. it's like, this is the ending that it's always been and it always should have been. And I don't know what I was thinking about trying to do that other version of it. It's crazy. Um, and so, yeah, so that was, that was what happened. Um, but that was the most substantial change. Really. Yeah. Um, it must, I didn't even think about that as a writer director that you might have to rewrite some things in production and that you just said and wow i mean that just puts a lot more pressure on you too because um did you feel like when you had to write in your off time to rework some things to make the shooting how many days were the shooting days we shot for 18 well we we budgeted for 18 days we took a 19th day because we just had to and when we were there uh with but it was like a kind of skeleton crew day um sent most of the crew off and then just tried to do what we can um on that last day but yeah i mean it was probably the biggest learning curve for me actually was just like you know i've been involved in film in one way or another for 20 years doing music videos commercials and short films and documentaries everything really um and I'd never, nothing had ever, had ever prepared me for that, that lesson, which was just like, oh, if you're a writer and di- writer and the director, you know, it's up to you. If, if something's not working in the script or you've run out of time and these five scenes now need to become two scenes, then it's up to you and nobody else. And it was, um, a nightmare because of that it really is it's like i mean i was on set writing during whilst the the lighting department was setting up the next shot i was um like i said we had we shot 60 six day weeks and on the seventh day everybody went i was beautiful we were down in canab in utah and it's stunning around there and everybody was going off hiking and having a really yeah. nice <laughs> day off and i was just sat in this motel room just literally like just tearing my hair out and kind of I had a few friends I would call I had one who's a writer I'd call him who was familiar with the script I had my editor back here in LA and you know also obviously familiar with the script and also some of the rushes that were coming in and you know so I talked to them about it talked to my producer about it but um ultimately yeah it was up to me and I really I, I never had a moment outside of this film to not think about this film at that time i mean you know i don't know how many directors do anyway really but um but certainly you your inclination when it when you run into these problems is just like oh can somebody <laughs> call the writer and get them to sort this out <laughs> and i'm like oh no that's me okay all right i gotta do it um so big lesson learned there. yeah but uh the movie the way that you put it all together really worked and um especially uh the lead character scott hayes uh the spiral he was going down in this just the isolatedness of the the place that he went down into and was stuck in and then in the progression of where he went mentally 
you know, in this, just with this woman, he doesn't know what's going on and, you know, going down this rabbit hole um, to the near the end scene. I'm not going to say what it is because I don't want to blow it, but God, yeah. I was thinking for the last couple months, it'd be like, oh my God, that would be awful. But do you want to just tell us a little bit about what the film is about since we haven't, we've just been kind of talking <laughs> about it this way? <laughs> yeah, again, without giving too much away, it's about a man who, city city dweller, who goes out to the desert one day to take some photos of a solar eclipse. On his way home, he meets a young boy who has lost his parents and he's quite distraught and he offers to give him some help. The boy leads him further into the desert and then basically runs off and leaves him alone and lost. And um, our lead character, Wyndham Stone, stumbles around the desert, eventually finding a woman who lives in a house at the bottom of a canyon. And he decides to descend a ladder to go into this canyon and spend the night with her. And then she's very nice and uh, non-threatening, I should say. A little odd, but non-threatening. He wakes up the next day and to discover that the ladder that he descended into this canyon is has gone. And he realizes that he's, along with her, like captive in this canyon. There is no other way out. It's just a giant crater in the desert. And then he realizes that they're both kind of captives of these sadistic boys, which the earlier kid uh, is a part of. And these boys live on the ridge to kind of basically torture and mess with these grown-ups down below but you know soon he begins to realize that there's something deeper going on um which he's not quite aware of obviously so that's the story yeah it's really survivalist horror um i wouldn't call it horror it's like a sort of horror thriller or something like that but it's really you know talking about the canyon it's really from the very beginning was the the third character really uh, it's like the the third main character in this film. It's really, it's so obviously the whole film takes place there. It ends up being, you know, you get these kids up on top, but for the most part, it's almost like a play is two-hander between him and this woman. When we were searching for it, we had to find somewhere which both visually worked for us, obviously worked on a practical level. And um, and we searched all over the world, and then we found this place down in, in southern Utah, which seemed to be, yeah, it served our purposes. It still was massively difficult, but... Um, yeah, and those kids, those feral kids, were amazing. Yeah. I mean, the just the looks, that uh, the costume design, uh, yeah. the makeup. How was it working with children? Are, are Were any of them over 18? I mean, some were younger, but... Uh, I think I, I think the, the oldest one was over 18, yeah, Alex, who plays Corvus, but... Um, the rest of them, uh, yeah, they're younger. They're, the youngest was um, Harrison, who plays the little boy, and he's he was um, he was like six or something like that when we were shooting. We also had, you know, those were the we had our kind of key boys who were like the main boys, and then we had a lot of like extras as well, which were generally came from Canab actually for the most part. They're just like local kids who came in, and we'd bring them in for. Some of the some of the shoots where we wanted more kids. Um, I mean, I was kind of hoping to have more most of the time, but uh, you know, we had what we could get basically and what we could afford. But it was great. I mean, you know, the thing is, working with these kids, they are like all. I mean, they're all from all over America, and they're they've never really been. None of them have been in the film before, um, and so they were so excited and kind of like. Not just excited to be in a movie, but to be in a kind of horror movie where they get to play this band of evil kind of kids. It's just like, I think for most young boys, like a real dream come true. Yeah. You know, get to be a bit nasty and get to be, you know, kind of bullies and uh, whatnot. It's just, I don't know. They, they really had a ball doing it and they were so fun and so up for it and and it was hard you know they were working nights as well like you know some of them i remember yeah the littlest kid harrison just when we we're doing some of the night shoots he would kind of fall asleep and then we kind of wake him up and bring him over <laughs> and i felt so bad because i got a son the same age and i just it was just like uh but he was so sweet and up for it and um 
the important thing for me was trying to get some kids who, because I saw a lot of kids who, and a lot of the children you get on these casting tapes are, you know, theater kids, and they're a bit, they're very polished. And they're, I mean, polished not in a kind of good way, but in a more like slightly theatrical way. And they look very nice. And I remember this one situation with one of the kids that I cast. I just remember he was just cast for like a background part, but he had these like really screwed up teeth, you know? And I was like, oh, I love this kid's teeth, you know? <laughs> I'm going to have a field day with them. And then he arrived on set and he had braces. And I was just like, oh my God, what have you done? Oh no. <laughs> you had to shoot him with his mouth closed the whole time because there's no way this kid would have braces right. in this movie. But um, um, but yeah, I wanted to give them, uh, you know, not just a look, but also a character, you know, like each, each of them had their character, each of the main kids anyway. And they, were, they knew who they were. They weren't just like evil kid number one or evil kid number two. They were like, you know, this is the kind of like one who's like in age wise in the middle, but kind of like in superiority wise, he's kind of at the top, you know, because he's a bit smarter and a bit more scheming. And, you know, just like they all had certain quirks to them and they they knew it. And they when they arrived on set, they had their um, their characters down. They had a one of the things I did was I did some I got my cousin who did the soundtrack we were talking about. He also there are these chants in the film. These kids do this kind of very primordial chant and um, they have different versions of it and we had to teach them to them. And I, because I didn't have a lot of time to work with the kids before they got on set. So I had Tristan, my cousin, do the do these like sessions with them um, near the motel we were staying in where they would basically, yeah, they would meet up for like, three or four hours they would learn these chants and bond and it was really important actually it really it was because when they arrived on set they knew each other they knew each other's characters they'd kind of they knew each other their characters and also their real person so they could you know they enjoyed each other and and um that really helped so yeah no i thought that they definitely each had their distinct personalities, like you're saying, definitely. The other thing is, just the other day, I mean, this film has been just lingering in my mind. And I was thinking, God, I would love a seating too, but this time we're we're with the kids. And what's going yes. on up there at the camp, you know? And how are, you yeah. know, like lowering the next one down or something. I, but, yeah. I mean, just like, how do they live? Who's taking care of them? Is it just the boys? Well, yeah, we have, you know... I mean, I I know all the answers to those questions because you know you you have to you have to know the world that you're delving into. Um, that I I did go into it more. Um, there was some stuff shot which I didn't end up using, and maybe it didn't work so well or whatever. But there was some stuff which kind of did give a little bit more of a glimpse into their world. There was one shot. It was a single tracking shot. Uh, through their kind of like we called it their lair which was essentially just like a kind of rabbit hole tunnel oh um, and it kind of moved through the tunnel at when they were asleep and they're all fast asleep and in there with them is like you know some like rotting bodies and also like you know the cave walls are like covered in blood and feces and then but there's also like piles of clothes in one corner because they just like, you know, that's where they keep their clothes. There's like wrappers of food, you know, there's a little campfire. Basically, I saw them as, I didn't see them as like feral children, like completely off the grid. I mean, they are, they are, they, 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 they she lives off the grid. They are kind of, in my mind, they are the, the, on the border, you know, they basically, they go between the worlds, you know, like as in their world is there with her, but it's also out like scavenging, you know, they, they scavenge for the guys, you know, they bring, they brought him in, but they also go out every bit of furniture or you see in her place has all come from them. They'll find, they'll be walking along the, the highway or, and, and they'll see some 
abandoned sofa or something and they'll pick it up and drag it down and drop it down into the into the canyon or or, or go and like you know find some some uh clothes in the back of a dumpster in in the back of a uh gas station or something you know that's where they get their you know it, it'll it'll it's all i wanted it to be like rooted in reality like there's some version of some version of this could exist somewhere you know that was my thought yeah yeah, no, that's that's really great that I got to get the backdrop of it because yeah. I was thinking, what's going on? So now I know. Yeah. I know that you had a bigger budget or were looking for a bigger budget and then you had casted a whole, casted a crew and then you had to recast. Is this because of um, the money you had to recast? It was mainly to do with the pandemic, basically. It was all to do with the pandemic. It was, we, we, uh, I had a, an English actor cast as, as in the lead, and he um, he had a, a project which was basically an, another very big project. It was a British TV show, and it was, I guess, because of the pandemic, his whole schedule shifted. And so when we were looking to shoot, once we finally got our, our million dollars and we were like ready to go and shoot, his that sh that TV show had shifted and into that place so we had to wait we were he was still really wanted to do it but we would have had to wait like another i don't know um six months and lost that opportunity and then uh the actress i've been talking to is actually romanian and i really loved her work and she's so interesting and um but again what happened was like during the pandemic it became the things that got very hard with obviously traveling, but also like visas and stuff like that. It just became, I think we could afford to get the visa and do all the paperwork in the original budget. But then when the budget got halved, it just became a impossibility. Um, so yeah, could have had an English man and a Romanian woman in the, in the lead role, which would have been very different. But uh, yeah, that's the way it goes. Yeah. So after filming, you, you get the film done, um, your editor is working on the dailies and, and I, it was, it was he starting to edit the film as you were going and you were seeing cuts or how did it, how does it work with you and the editor? How do you work with the editor? My editor, Stuart Reeves, who's a wonderful editor. Um, he was, uh, he was putting stuff together, um, whilst I, I'd, I'd storyboarded. So he had a kind of rough idea. Even though obviously the storyboard ends up being very different to what I shoot, um, ultimately most of the time I, I use storyboards really just as a kind of comforting blueprint that I can turn to if I'm too frazzled to think about what else to do. You know, right. I just like then act more in the moment when I'm there. But like, you know, sometimes it's good to just have a, a starting point, you know, so that's what I use the the storyboards for, or actually just a shot list. I didn't, I don't think I, I storyboarded the whole film, but I shot listed it. And um, so he had that, so he could, you know, essentially start putting stuff together. And he would, it was, <laughs> we had this idea that, yeah, he would put stuff together and then, you know, in this beautiful ideal world, um, he would ring me out and say, this scene's great, but, you know, it'd be great if you could catch like another close-up of, you know, Alina reacting to him and to this line or something like that, or just a close-up of him picking up a cup and whatever, you know, these kind of things. And that was the idea. But obviously, we fell so quickly, so far behind schedule that, like, there was just no chance of any of that happening. So, unfortunately... He kept on ringing me up saying that, and I was just like, Stuart, sorry. <laughs> I, I, wish, I wish I can. And, you know, and he did, he made this list, and we, we kept that list, and if we ever got a chance to do anything, we would try and grab it, you know. Some of it kicked over into... We had a two-day pickup shoot about eight months later here in Los Angeles, outside of just outside of Los Angeles. We got some of those things that he was asking for there um but really we were doing kind of uh yeah we were doing some more i mean we we, we left because we left utah with like really sad and you know it felt pretty sad because i i felt like i've oh, left with a 
80% finished film or something. Like we literally had scenes where like half the scene was shot, but the other person's coverage we had none of, you know? And we had to make these really difficult calls when we were there in Utah on that final day of like, well, okay, this is a shot of Scott and it's just got ground behind him, you know, desert earth. Let's get that in LA, you know? So we really had some like, you know, it, it was that kind of a situation where you're really picking the the most important shots for that final day, the ones which like we know like involved the shack or involved these things that we could never get again or or something which was just like so specific to that location um, that couldn't be got in LA. Uh, but yeah, so it was it was kind of um, and then when I got back, he had a so he, he had an assembly. Um, but I was so in such a bad state that I didn't really want to see it for about two weeks. Um, it's just like, you know, my wife was really, actually, she was instrumental in telling me not to see it. You know, just wait until you're like yeah, rested and kind of able to, you know, look at it with a bit clearer eyes, which I did. And that really helped. But it was still awful watching it. I've got to say it was awful and... And yeah, and it just had all these big gaps in and slowly we began to, you know, piece it together in the edit. And um, Stuart is a, you know, by day, he's really a commercials editor, extremely successful, brilliant commercials, award-winning commercials editor, um, which allowed him to basically do my film for not, you know, for for. A, a very reasonable rate basically mm-hmm. could afford it because he would he would you know because he would he it was a passion project for him he would go off he would go and edit some apple commercial make a lot of money and then come back and spend three weeks with me so which was actually worked out pretty well because it was in in that time when he was off doing commercials i would have time to reflect and look at it and say okay well maybe this scene needs some work and maybe that scene and then yeah by the time we we finished shooting in november and then of uh, 2021 and then 2022 by about, I think it was May, that was when we did our reshoot and um, our pickups, those two days of pickups. And we had a, you know, a really solid list of exactly what we needed at that point. And we even had like these little, in the, up until then, we had these awful like shots of Scott in his garden wearing a baseball cap here in LA, just like doing his line so he had something to work with you know in the edit and uh it's always so gratifying when you you take those out and put the real shots in and it still works (sighs) yeah 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 you just need it for timing and it's important to get that and just you know um but it's painful when you're watching it yeah are you happy with the completed film um yeah i mean you know i am i'm i feel like i i watched this documentary on George Lucas making Star Wars. It was actually the documentary on Industrial Lights and Magic and the first one is really about him making Star Wars and you know, they can never understand why he was just so like glum about it all considering he'd made this incredible world changing film, you know. Um and, you know, he's he's he said, Well, you know, all I really see is that sticky tape and the band-aids holding the whole thing together and like you know my answer is I did the best I could under the conditions that's what I feel I feel like I did the best I made the best film I could under those conditions and I'm happy I am happy with that I'm happy that that like essentially what I was going to get even though there was so much I mean you lose so much there's so much lost from the script there's so much lost in translation there's so much lost in budget and you know all these things that kind of you have to get your head around like ultimately i'm happy that what is still there is at the heart of it what i was going for you know which was the you know that the the atmosphere and the feeling the feelings that i wanted to evoke and some of the subjects i wanted the film to tackle are still it's still in there you know and it's still very much a part of it and I feel really um, 
thankful for that, you know. And I'm just, you know, like, I'm, yeah, just amazed that, I mean, when I left Utah, I was like, that was a complete disaster. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so you're just like, when you finally finish it, I think it was in New York when I was doing the final um, grade uh, color color process uh, at Harbor in New York, and I was just watching it, and finally it looks like the film. I I did the sound mix, you know, and and so that was the that was the moment where you've got the yeah the color is done, the sound mix is done. This is the final moment, and you're looking at it, and you're like, wow, okay, yeah, this is it. This is great, you know. It's actually awesome and uh and so yeah i am that's good i mean i thought it was uh well done and i you know i mean this is your first narrative right Right. i mean you did documentary you've done music videos i thought for her first film it was really good yeah (laughs) and and again i gotta say the acting the the story and the sound design the music composition sound design really brought it to another level yeah Um, oh completely what derailed the shooting schedule? I mean, many things, really. Um, yeah, it just, I think maybe some of the people I had on the crew were just, like, not quite right in terms of just weren't quite, quite the right people for the job, uh-huh. you know. Okay. Um, weren't quite flexible, didn't have the... I had to make a million compromises and there were certain people there who just didn't really want to compromise their vision and that made it very hard and um things slowed down a lot the place was extremely hard to shoot in it's one of those stories where like and you know i think for the most part just shooting is is impossible anyway but like this was one of those things where like everything which could have gone wrong went wrong you know um for example we had one like very windy muddy off-road path through this canyon to get into the location and um it was about a 15 20 minute ride along that and about a week before we shot snow came down and which is really mysteriously early for 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 that to happen there in utah it's just like a month early, just this random snow fell. And it was a big snow, and it looked beautiful. But as the snow melted, it just melted what road there was away. So we just basically had to rebuild the road. And we spent the whole entire film rebuilding that road. You know, it was just like... Uh, so just on a fundamental level, you're dealing with stuff like that. And and then I remember at one point being, being on the... Um, on this cherry picker with my DP and we were like shooting the kids um, and they're up there and they're all harnessed in on the side of this uh, ridge and my DP lines up the shot, spends a while lining up the shot, gets it right. Then there's some other stuff, going, final checks happening and then we're just about to shoot and then he's just like, hang on a second. I got to reframe, you know, and I'm like, what's going on? This is weird. And this happened like three or four times until we just suddenly realized that the cherry picker was broken and the hydraulics had bust and, and the whole thing was just slowly going down oh, no. with us in it, with us and the camera in it. I mean, very slowly, but just enough to like literally by the, by the end of, by the moment we're about to shoot, the frame had totally gone. So we had to get this cherry picker out and then that, broke down on the road and stayed there for about three days, the only road we had, and we had to, like, bring all the equipment around it. It was just, like, you know, also it was uh, hot during the day, desert conditions, hot during the day, extremely cold at night. We're on a very a very small crew, um, so everybody's working really hard and just but overworked, really. Um, long, long days. It just... Everything just took longer than yeah. expected. And, um, you know, I had to lose a lot of scenes. Like I said, um, I, uh, you know, it was just one of those shoots. But it was extremely, I mean, I really felt when I left, I'd like, I can never do this ever again. And actually, it was when we did the, the, the pickups. In fact, before we did the pickups, I did this one afternoon in the desert um, with a, 
not the DP actually. It was a friend of mine who was a DP who I just drafted in at the last minute because he lived around the corner from me and had a camera. But to go and shoot the baby from the beginning, we're like, let's go and shoot that. I want to do that. And uh, I got that. I, I did that with this DP and with with uh, my cousin who did the music. It was it was the three of us and a makeup artist and the little baby and his parents. And that was basically it. And I remember doing that day and you're like, ah, never work with kids and babies and all that kind of stuff. But like, it was just so fun. And I remember leaving that day and I was just like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. Filmmaking could be fun too. Yeah, I've forgotten it. It could be really fun. And so it kind of restored my love of it. And then we did those pickup days and they were a lot smoother because we knew what we wanted and we just, it was just easier. We were, you know, you take a you take a risk when you decide to shoot in the middle of nowhere. That's the thing, and you don't have much money. You take a risk, and also we wanted a completed film that, even though it's low budget, didn't feel like a low budget. It doesn't feel like you're not aware of the 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 limitations that the filmmakers had, you know, and and kind of it feels you know hopefully you should watch it and feel like well that's the kind of budget and they you know it's it's whatever budget they had it's right for it you know right um not shouldn't be walking away thinking oh god that that wobbly set or whatever and you know that that, that terrible acting or you know you just want to kind of get the most out of it so anyway yeah yeah it was beautifully shot what did you shoot on what camera um uh, the alexa Okay, and then um, was this edited in Avid? Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm always yeah. kind of curious what people use to do feature films. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Avid and um, shot Alexa. We shot, like I said, we shot those scene with the baby and a few little pickup shots. The the other shots we shot, I have a, like I said, I have this friend, this DP who lives around the corner and he has his own camera. He has a red, a red. And I spoke to my colorist and I was like, are you confident that we can get these to match? And he was like, yeah, sure. You know, so it was just kind of perfect because uh, Matthew, Matthew Chung is his name. He lives around the corner and he, he, I could just call him up the last minute and get these little things done. These little extra little things like I wanted, like we did, um, we did shots of the moon, you know, which were taken from his roof in Echo Park around the corner from me. And then also we did all the shot, the plate shots of the, are used with the titles throughout, the intertitles. Yes, um, oh yeah. Uh, the plate of rotting food. That was all, that was all shot in my shed, in my garden. And um, I had this, and it was a great luxury being able to do that because I, I had this, yeah, this, I, I wanted to do this idea of of showing time passing in a very visual way. Um, and I, I, yeah, I just love this idea of seeing this almost like still life of a plate of food. There's a quail, there's some onions, carrots, and mushrooms, I think. And it's on this nice plate and we've sh shot it quite formally, and basically we're watching this um, as it rots throughout the film, and it's used as the titles throughout the film just to show the passing of time. And I just had this plate, and I'd put it, I'd, I'd bring it out. I kept it in a Tupperware container, and I'd bring it out once every three weeks, and then I would like call up my um, my friend Matthew and be like, you got to get over here now. The maggots have hatched. <laughs> <laughs> And so we'd spend like, I don't know, just an hour shooting these shots of the maggots. Then he'd go off and then then we'd, you know, I'd call him up in another three weeks with the the next stage of the of the um the rotting of the food. Yeah, no, I thought that was brilliant and also to play into the beginning scene of him shooting the eclipse and also the monthly cycles, uh yes. you know, yeah. everything. Yeah. So Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, again, that was something, those titles, which are, should say, for your listeners, they are, they are, we used the phases of the moon, the almanac phases of the moon. So 
harvest moon or beaver moon or sturgeon moon, blue moon. Um, again, these weren't written in the script. This was when we were editing and we just felt like we needed to show some, we needed a better demarcation of time passing than what I'd shot basically. And um, we talked about various options and, and it was actually Stuart, my editor, who was like, what about moon phases? And uh, I was like, yeah, that's just like great because A, the names are so fabulous, you know, but also more than anything, it just tied so perfectly into everything else and into all the themes in the film. And um, so, yeah, it was just one of those kind of, again, kind of, you're always, the story is always being remade and, and remolded as it goes along. You know, it's just like constantly, you're constantly changing and you need to, as a filmmaker, be be like open to that change. Well, and also stepping outside the box of time. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what I, you know, again, that's what, when you ask me, like, am I happy with the film? Like, I'm happy that I managed to get some sense of, like, of my voice as a filmmaker through. You know, that's that's really what you hope for is, like, uh, and actually, honestly, when I came back from Utah, I, that's what I felt most unhappy about. I felt like, because when you're shooting low budget, under such time constraint, you're really, you have your list, your shot list, and you just feel like for the most part, you're just Pressed. crossing these shots off, you know? And you're like, when do I ever get to just have fun and experiment and just like play in the, in the, in the, in the sandpit, you know, and just like enjoy it. But so I felt, I did feel a little bit like that when I came, but then slowly, you know, you begin to see, well, actually I did manage to get that. And I did manage to get that. And then, also with these other little things like going off into my shed and doing those things that, yeah, they kind of, that's when you feel, that's when I, I really enjoy those moments actually, when you're, when you can just, I mean, I also, I'm also aware that, that as a filmmaker, it's very rare that you get the chance to do that. And I felt like the, the one good thing that this situation, good advantage of being low budget and not really having, uh, I didn't, re we didn't really have like a production company like banging down our door during the edit, you know, to get this finished. So I had a bit of time to, to go and think about it. Like I said, when Stuart was off editing commercials, I had time to think about it, but also like maybe shoot some other stuff, go and shoot the moon, you know, go and take a day out to the desert and shoot some, some rocks and some spiders crawling around or whatever, you know, just, I didn't want this film to just be driven by the narrative but also to use the you know what's essentially like b-roll to like build the atmosphere <laughs> well and also i mean i say be proud of yourself because for all the problems you completed a film that looks really beautiful you know mm. and yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. you know a lot of times people get stuck and don't even finish the film so i mean yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been on a couple of those, so yeah, yeah, no, no, hundred percent, yeah, yeah, and you—that—that's the—that's the thing. When you get to the end, you're like, "Wow, did it?" Yeah, you know, like, you know, and um, yeah, like I said, it was very disheartening leaving. It was just—I think the, the hardest thing was when we left Utah. Was just that the feeling, a that yeah, like where, where was the art? Where do they get to create all that fun stuff on the side? But not just that it was the fact that like we left with, yeah, like. 85% of a movie or something like that have we were missing some like key scenes that we needed and um so actually we had to raise some financing after when we were in in the edit we cobbled together a kind of teaser trailer and sent it out and that's when XYZ came on board they they saw that and because we basically needed to pay for that that uh or the the two days of pickups we didn't have any money for. So um, I felt fairly confident that from what we'd shot there that we could get that extra money. It, it was, um, but it was vital. I mean, we needed it. it the, there would be no film without it. So right. um, um, thank God they stepped in and very quickly as well. They, they were like, they saw the teaser and they're like, oh, this looks great. Yeah, how much do you need? Yeah, and your trailer was amazing. I mean, when I saw yeah. that trailer, I was like, can I 
get the screener because <laughs> this this looks really amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think as filmmakers, you have to persevere. Yeah. Complete the film. Do what you got to do and don't give up when it gets hard. And that's exactly what you did. You totally, didn't give yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I... <laughs> funny because i'm i'm just reading at the moment i'm reading uh the biography of Werner herzog and uh you know like his whole career is basically that it's just like is not giving up in the face of extreme extreme adversity you know and um and what a career career he's had you know um i think if you uh especially if you want to like try and do something a bit different and you will try and it's hard, it's brutally hard, but it's really kind of like gratifying when you finish it and you get it done and you're like, okay, this is, this is it. And it is different. And, um, yeah, why not? Now, uh, do you have any, um, what are you doing now? Any projects you want to mention as we close? Um, no, I mean, I'm just, I'm working on, uh, I have a new script here in front of me. <laughs> How far are you um, in? I'm on the like fifth draft actually. Oh, great. Um, yeah. And it's very, uh, you know, it's definitely one which I wrote with the idea of like, I really want to go back to the desert for a bit. So this one takes place in the city. <laughs> <laughs> nice. With people. Or nice isolated. Warm, <laughs> warm, nice warm studio. Um, so... Uh, but it's a, it's a, it's still in the genre and it's kind of, um, but more in the kind of body horror world. Um, it's actually based in New York and it's kind of, I don't know. I, I mean, Rosemary's Baby left such a big impression on me and I always loved that. I mean, that's obviously in the Dakota building in the Upper West Side, but that kind of the, the Upper East and Upper West Side, that world, that storied world of wealth up there has always intrigued me and um so it kind of takes place in that world but it's very much in the goes into the realms of Cronenbergian body horror oh. um so it's fun all yeah. right um yeah. it, what is your process like when you write uh do you you said that you write a treatment first do you pretty much when you're going into a story, you know, you're start to finish or or as you're writing your treatment, you are figuring out how do you flow into figuring out what your story is? I think the hardest part is sometimes we can have these great ideas. Oh, I got these pivotal yeah. ideas. But how do you bring yeah. it into a whole thing? How do you work? Yeah, when I'm doing the treatment, it generally things the the main plot beats at least the ones you work off. I mean, they change obviously the whole time, but but you, they they tend to fall into place just with this kind of momentum which takes place when you're writing. You're like, okay, this leads here, that leads there. This is the obvious place for this to go, and it moves until you're finally like facing the end, and you're like, okay, well, I try not to be too technical about it and hit certain second act page 30 right, you know yeah. or whatever you know I, I i try and be a bit more fluid than that but um i mean it's helpful if you can be a bit like that because those tools are there for a reason they do actually help but at the same time like i kind of just let the story tell itself as much as possible i think um if you can channel as much as you can you know that's the way to do it i, I feel like Sometimes that leads into the wrong place, but um, I mean, this script, for example, the seeding was never a long script. It was always, I think the longest version of it was like 95 pages or something like that. But at one point it was like 76 pages or something. It's, it, was, it was never a long script. This new one, my first draft was like 270 pages or something. Wow. really way too long you know and which was just like how why I, and that was not it was not on purpose it was not like i want to go off and write this grand thing it was nothing like that it was really just this that was just the way the story came out somehow it came out that way and unfortunately it's giving me massive 
headache now because I'm trying to <laughs> like corral it and yeah. like, bring it back and make it a little shorter and a little bit more like, you know, within that more classical structure, you know. Um, but yeah, I don't like, but really, you know, it generally starts with a, a single idea or an image or like, or a feeling or, or, I mean, you mentioned the music a lot when we were talking and I did have Tristan, the composer, I did have him, you know, we worked many times before. He's my cousin, like I said, and like, um, so I had the luxury of like, I think, you know, very early draft sending him a script and him reading it. He's like, yeah, okay, I get this. And then, so then he started sending me music and that kind of informed the process. Um, and then I used that again later when I was casting. I was like, once I'd cast the movie, I sent the actors music. And so like, this is the world, listen to this, this is the world. And, and, and you'll get a, a better picture, a, a more fleshed out picture than just reading the script. And it's tremendously helpful. So music is important to me as well. I mean, not just the, the music that Tristan composed for the film, but there were a couple of other pieces of music that I was listening to, listening to incessantly when I was writing the seeding would just really kind of took me to that place. And if I was ever a bit lost, it would guide me back, but really guide me to the kind of the feeling as opposed to the what should happen. I mean, you know, I obviously from doing music videos and just being working so much in the music world before this, it's just very much like that's how I work, you know, that's music is infused within in the the grammar, you know, the cinematic grammar from the very beginning. Uh, uh, if you have the, the, that kind of luxury where you can work with the composer and it's just such a fabulous tool to work with, you know, it can really just explain so much to everybody. Um, just like, this is the type of film we're making. Yes. Immediately. Yeah. Yeah, I would... I was thinking, do you listen to music? Like you were saying, it's like you listen to songs and it just like brings that feeling of, and then can flow the ideas too. Like, yeah. oh, I love yeah. that. Yeah. So do yeah, you listen so... to music when you're writing or do you have it yeah. quiet? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I put it on in the background, generally pretty quietly, but um, I have it on and it's there and it's kind of uh, not always. Sometimes I have to turn it off. I find it distracting but but for the most part and also another part of the process i sometimes have when i'm a bit stuck is i have this big folder on my laptop computer there's like a folder which is basically images and uh, i've got about 4000 images in there that i just just have over the years just pulled off the internet and uh it just a lot of them um Photographs, paintings, just some artsy, mm-hmm. you know, visual, basically. And uh, if I get lost, I will quite often, yeah, again, put on some music and just sift through that folder. And it's it's a it's a mission because it's like yeah, it's like you know, four thousand images. It can take a day to go through it, but like. Generally, there's something in there. I'll see an image and and maybe the, with the music and it's just like that will set off a whole, you know, it can you can get a whole film from that if you want to or, or at least a, a scene or something or just or a feeling. Um, so that's another helpful tool that I have. That is so great. I didn't even think about that. Images. Um, yeah. Yeah. Any last thoughts you want to leave the listeners with on writing, directing? Yeah, I've spoken about all the hardships and woes of shooting um, that that I went through. And, you know, I should say that I'm tremendously grateful for that opportunity. It's like it's so amazing to be in a situation where you get to do something that you love to do, love doing. It's really like... That's the greatest. And there, within those moments when you're on set and you're, it's just the, 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 
roof is falling in. It's just a disaster. Um, you know, it's this important to kind of like, I don't know, take a moment, like look at the sky and look where you are, look where you're at, look what you're doing and just, you know, just be like, and then go back to it knowing that like, yeah, this is what I wanted and this is what I love. And, um, uh, and for me, yeah, wouldn't trade it for anything, even though it's really hard, just got to keep going. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This was great. Sure. Thank you, Tammy. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening. I encourage you to get out there and make a film. Reach out to your local filmmakers group to get involved and connect. Please subscribe to the show if you like it. And follow me on Instagram at Tammy McGarrow. Until we meet again, what's your story? Come on.